My name's Tom Jennings, and this is the 24 Frames cast. Um, I, the reason I'm going to be doing this episode was I wanted to get a quick episode out because I'm actually in the process of recording and editing a um, slightly longer episode. It's taking a little bit longer than I thought, and I just was consciously aware that the weeks were ticking by and I hadn't actually recorded anything, so I decided to do this episode, and I will be taking a look um, briefly at the um, Sam Fuller biography, A Third Face, and his uh, war film, The Big Red One. But before I get to that, um, I do have to do... Uh, some small pieces of housekeeping. Um, the first one is um, relating to Twitter, and I, um, it must have been about four weeks ago now, noticed on my phone that um, Twitter uh, wasn't refreshing, and I noticed that my followers and following list had suddenly disappeared to zero, so I decided to try and find out what was going on, logged on to my Gmail account and found out that my account had been suspended and there was no explanation giving. I, I, I just found out there was some generic uh, link to Twitter's terms and conditions. Um, I've subsequently contacted Twitter to ask them why I, my account has been suspended. It has now been permanently suspended. Um, I've not received any response back. I have no idea. Uh, why this happened I've I can still access my old Twitter account and when I go into it um, I've been through the tweets uh, that I've, I've sent um, over the past couple of months uh, I can't see anything that constitutes being banned from Twitter it is genuinely quite baffling to me um, as to why this has happened um, again I have submitted another request um, to, to speak to someone in Twitter support but it does look like for whatever reason um, hopefully I will find out I don't think Twitter has an obligation to tell me why I've been banned from Twitter I, I think it's I'm a firm believer it's its own company it can do whatever it wants and it can have whoever it wants um, on its platform or not as the case may be but I, I think it's quite I, I am genuinely quite um, interested to know what part of their terms and conditions I've violated. Again, I've looked at the, the, the tweets. I, I can't see anything. The tweet, I, I tweeted on that day. Um, I think it was a link to an article about Army of Shadows, a Jean-Pierre Melville film. So I, I, I legitimately don't know why this has happened. Um, it's quite straight. I, I know Twitter has quite an idiosyncratic policy. I mean, I, I, um, I know someone who was a doctor who has been kicked off Twitter because they replied to a tweet from someone who was looking for advice um, whether or not to put their child on puberty blockers and my friend messaged them well tweeted and said that as a doctor you know she thought it was a terrible thing and that kind of thing she was kicked off Twitter I also know uh, I've also seen accounts that have called for the genocide of another holocaust sorry calling for another holocaust um recently there was um something David Bedil tweeted and it was someone um, who had 150,000 followers, blue check, saying that they wanted another Hitler to come back and kill all the Jews. That person's still on Twitter. I, I find it genuinely absurd, genuinely baffling. And there's certainly nothing on my feed um, which is even vaguely comparable to anything as horrific as that. So um, I fully expect my account not to be reinstated. Um, so obviously what I've done is what everyone does when they get kicked off Twitter. I've naturally started another account because I know there were quite a few of you who I had really kind of nice encounters with on Twitter. So um, if you want, uh, I'm, I'm going to have to be a bit incognito, I suppose, um, for the time being. So if you want to uh, 
me to follow and I'll follow you back. You can email me at 24framescast at gmail.com and just yeah, just post a link to, to your profile and I'll, I'll contact you on Twitter. Um, and then you know, we could obviously keep it to yourself, as it were. I don't, I don't want to be kicked off again because bizarrely enough, I do actually really like Twitter as a platform. It's the social, it, that and Instagram are the two forms of social media I use the most. Um, and yeah, I, again, I'm, I'm just completely baffled as to what's happened. It might, it might be that I get reinstated. I have submitted another claim, uh, counterclaim. So we, we will see um, over the next few weeks if anything happens. But I, to be brutally honest with you, I don't think it's going to. So just to reiterate, if you uh, want to follow me on Twitter, uh, email me 24framescast at gmail.com and I will, uh, I, will, I will get in contact with you in that way. So um, another thing I suppose I wanted to kind of say uh well so another piece of housekeeping as it were and this is slightly kind of off tangent i suppose but um during the uh, the cost of living crisis which is engulfing um the uk i'm not sure what it's like in the rest of the world uh, i have to, i've had to do kind of quite a big drastic scale back of kind of various things i was subscribed to and then, you know, obviously i think they all tend to mount up and one of the things i moved over was going from spotify to amazon music um and the point of this which I will get to you may be more wondering why I'm rabbiting on about it but um one of the things about that attracted me to go over to the Amazon service was the fact that the quality of the music streams is far better than uh, Spotify and one of the things I've come across is the HD music tracks they say they're recorded in 24-bit which is I think what Amazon class is being kind of studio reference quality and it has been a revelation, I suppose, in kind of terms of the listening experience, but in particularly listening to film soundtracks on that format has been revelatory, to say the least. Um, they've recently posted, um, it's the full Jerry Goldsmith score to Star Trek The Motion Picture, which I understand is going to be coming out on, there's a new remastered Blu-ray, new HD of that coming out, at the, um, I think in September. I think it might be on Paramount Plus already in the States, but... I have been absolutely blown away listening to soundtracks in this format. You do have to have the necessary um, decoding equipment. I know Sonos now, um, which is I have my kind of Sonos setup downstairs, and I have another setup up in up in the film room. But up in the film room, especially listening to things like um, John Williams uh, live in Vienna on mastered audio is absolutely incredible. I, I've become such a joy going back to some of these soundtracks, especially things like Hans Zimmer's soundtrack to Dune and Interstellar. So um, I'll be posting, if you do follow me on Twitter again, I will be posting kind of daily recommendations. So if you were thinking of um, ditching streaming music services, I can heartily recommend Amazon HD. Um, also, it's things like, I mean, I've never had... Um, uh, the the alien soundtrack i've only ever kind of streamed it on spotify i've, I've, I've never been able to to get hold of it i think the cd was ridiculously expensive i don't have a record player so even just listening to that on basic uh, cd quality flac format which is also seems to be the kind of the norm for amazon streaming has been has been really good but those 24-bit tracks are really something to behold I'm, I'm so impressed with the service it's eight quid as well a month which i think you know works out two pounds a week or whatever so it's a bit of a bargain so with all that aside i'm going to crack on with this episode and the reason i've decided to um talk about um, Samford is the big red one is because I have a book recommendation for you all which is his biography A Third Face and it really is 
it, it, it's, it's an absolute pleasure to read. I mean, Sam Fuller's life um, has been quite extraordinary once you get tucked into it. I mean, this was someone who started off um, working his way through Park Row, becoming a journalist. He's one of his kind of earliest kind of assignments as a as a budding journalist was to report on executions, mainly um, electric chair uh, deaths. And you, you, what emerges is a portrait of a man whose life it's it's a film within itself. Um, he kind of starts off as being a journalist. He gets into screenwriting. Um, writing books he world war ii comes along and he actually volunteers and he gets um assigned to the first infantry division where he's involved in some of the pretty much some of the most iconic moments in the history of of that war the um original american invasion of north africa the sicily campaign d-day the ardennes forest in the battle of the bulge and ends up liberating a concentration camp and you can tell that the war obviously has had a profound effect on Fuller it's something he goes back to and it's, it's a recurring theme in his work and personally he was greatly um, troubled by what he'd seen and a portrait emerges over the course of a book of you get a real sense when you watch his films of how personal his films are even when he's directing I suppose what you could kind of consider to be um kind of studio genre pictures it's these war films which I've I've really taken to I've recently kind of picked up and watched uh, Merrill's Marauders which is an absolutely fantastic film um it kind of reminded me a little cross between Thin Red Line and Oliver Stone's Platoon a, re a really great film but I think it's really important if you're going to watch The Big Red One to read his biography I think it's a better film if you do that because I think there's lots of like there's there's so many anecdotes that he talks about in the book which you see cropping up in the film and kind of stories about his experiences in the conflict and I, I, I can heartily recommend doing that I mean it's not to say you won't get anything out of the big red one if you don't read the book certainly certainly will I mean as, as I'm, I'm hopefully we're going to kind of convince you of as I talk about the film but I, I would recommend getting it I, I think it's only like 10 quid on Amazon and the thing about it's where it's really easy to read um, he's got quite a kind of pulpy style um, his, his prose I mean the chapters are quite short they're very punchy he's kind of got a really infectious way of writing I, th I think whenever I've seen interviews with him you can you really hear the man in the text as it were so it's a brilliant book I mean if you're just interested in the kind of the dynamics of what it's like to kind of make films in Hollywood and then kind of find yourself having to kind of scuttle around Europe picking up jobs it's a fantastic read um, Sam Fuller a third face um, so that's going to lead me on then to talk about the big red one some say it was the most powerful movie of its day. Others say it is the best war movie of all time. But all agree on one thing. There's more to the story. Its time has returned. Recut. 
re-envisioned, reconstructed, with 47 additional minutes, as director Sam Fuller originally intended. Sam Fuller was a director's director. His peers, both young and old, from Fritz Lang to Quentin Tarantino, adored his work, as did critics and more often than audiences too. Of his works he's seen, of his works I've seen, and even the ones that perhaps I've not enjoyed, such as the film White Dog, I found something in them to appreciate. No matter what genre he is working in, from Western to war to the noir, you know you are in a Sam Fuller film. There is an economy to them that I really appreciate with not a wasted line of dialogue. Every scene has weight and meaning and there is a palpable sense of the writer Fuller loving every second of his yarns as he refers to them in his biography. I'm never bored in his film because there's nothing dull about them and I think it's clearly the background and the reporter in him that helps Every camera angle, every movement, every line, every character has a meaning and a purpose in one of his films. And films they are. I really enjoyed his cinemascope film House of Bamboo. Helen Highwater and Meryl's Marauders feel absolutely epic, especially House of Bamboo, which was shot beautifully in Japan. Fuller was a machine, constantly writing, constantly looking for inspiration from both his own life and any story that took his interest. Yet the one film he wanted to make his entire career was The Big Red One. Having served with the 1st Infantry Division in World War II, Fuller was profoundly affected by this experience. War shook him to his core, its brutality, the suffering man inflicted on each other, and he would often suffer from terrible flashbacks and nightmares from his involvement in it throughout his entire life. The Big Red One was a film he was destined to make, even if its journey to the big screen was far from easy. Fuller rewrote his screenplay several times over the decades. Despite being offered films such as The Longest Day in Patton, which he declined, Fuller's heart was always set on directing The Big Red One. And despite nearly being made several times, the project lingered way after, I think, what could be described as the most prolific period of Fuller's career. Indeed, from 1964's Shock Corridor, Fuller would only make two more films until the Big Red One in 1980, Shark, a 1968 film, 1969 film, sorry, um, about a shark that is apparently terrible, and Dead Pigeon on Beethoven Street in 1972, which was a German-made-for-TV film. By this time, Fuller had moved to Europe and was the father of a young daughter from his second wife. And despite still getting writing jobs and the occasional acting job, his character as a director had stalled. However, the Big Red One finally looked like it was going to happen. Friend. Peter Bodanovich had promised to help Fuller get the film made and Paramount who eventually pulled out of the film passed the film to an independent production company called Lorimore with Gene Corman, Roger Corman's brother acting as producer. Originally it was budgeted at 12 million but this would eventually get slashed to four. Now the big red one follows in effect four soldiers and their sergeant through their experiences in World War II. Fuller peppers himself through the four soldiers. Griff, played by Mark Hamill, is unsure about whether or not he can fight. He's also a cartoonist, Fuller was too. Robert Carradine, as Private Zeb, is a writer of novels and serial cigar smoker, definitely Fuller. Bobby De Cicero as Private Vinci, an Italian-speaking New York native, and Kelly Ward as Private Johnson. These were known as the Four Horsemen, and on the set they kept themselves to themselves. 
during the film's production, never really socialising with the actors who would be used as the replacements in the film. Now, when the film was optioned by Warners, Jack Warner had wanted John Wayne to be the star. He will also briefly considered Steve McQueen, who was game, but eventually he went to the person he had always in his heart of heart wanted for the sergeant's role, that being Lee Marvin. Himself a veteran of the Pacific campaign in World War II, Marvin apparently received the screenplay and immediately called Fuller stating, your sergeant is ready for duty. And in truth, he's pretty damn near perfect for the film. Marvin is an actor who I don't think has a contemporary. For me, he represents a shift in the American action hero, a kind of bridge between John Wayne and Clint Eastwood. Wayne could be funny, heroic mostly, and Marvin, I think, is something far more greyer. Wayne could never have gotten away with what Marvin does in The Dirty Dozen when he pulls fuel on a bunch of Nazis, women included, and blows them to pieces and looks like he's having the time of his life doing it. Likewise, he can smash a face in and barely mutter a sentence, as in point blank. Actors like him, and the reason I don't think there's a contemporary like Marvin is because we don't make films the way we did, and I don't think we'll ever see anyone quite like him again. Now, with the budget of the film being reduced from 12 million to 4 million, Fuller decided to shoot the film in the place that offered the best bang for buck. In this case, it was Israel, before he would finish off the film in Ireland for films set in the Eden Forest. Now, I first saw The Big Red One in the 1990s, and if I'm honest, I was not particularly taken with it, even more so when I saw it projected at university. The film felt rushed for me, constrained and constricted. It didn't, and at the time, I didn't realise that the, this was the theatrical cut that had been drastically cut down from an original running time of four and a half hours. And just an aside on this, you often hear of films that have a mythical five-hour cut, four hours, whatever, and I personally believe that these films would be terrible in those states. There's a reason they are that long. It's because they haven't been edited yet. And I often see people saying, oh, well, I'm, you know, I'm sure the six-hour version of Apocalypse Now is the version to watch. I don't think it would be. And I, I, you know, it, I think it's a way of feeling this narrative that people have that studios meddle too much when it comes to people's artistic visions. But in this case, I think the reconstruction of The Big Red One, which took place in 2004, is a vastly better film to the original theatrical cut. Now, by its nature, the film feels very episodic, and this is entirely intentional on the part of Fuller. He hated board films that built to some kind of huge climactic battle, and by its nature, war is episodic episodic and he wanted to tell a tale about his experience not some fantasy version of war or indeed someone who has only experienced war through the movies fuller lived this experience and who better to educate us as to what conflict is actually like as you watch the film you become increasingly aware of just how perfect marvin is for the film he doesn't shout and bark at his men he's guiding them through the war the best he can to get on with the job of winning it when one soldier has one of his balls blown off by a mine, he casually chucks it away and tells him that's why they give you two. It's a daft scene in many respects. It's kind of funny and it makes you wince as well, but it's a scene that Fuller actually witnessed. A screenwriter may have never have gone there. Perhaps in a lesser film, the sergeant would have cradled the soldier, tied him, told him that he would be back home with Mary Jane soon, but Fuller knows better and you get on with it and get going. And the film is filled with these surreal moments. 
A woman giving birth in a tank with belts of ammunition uses stirrups. As a soldier delivers the baby, he says he's getting horny. It is so wrong, but again, it's real. This happened, and it's the kind of daft shit men say. It's crude, yes, but that's the point I think is being made. These aren't the type of soldiers philosophizing about their lot in life, crying for their innocence. They're young men surviving and talking in the moment. The father figure character in the movement is often a beacon of virtue, and a good companion piece to the would be a film like Saving Private Ryan. Hanks is a borderline saint in the film, a school teacher, a husband, a man who can contextualise what they are doing in a way that his men can look for their souls, look into their souls and agree and get on with. That's Hollywood war and why John Wayne would never have been a perfect fit for this film. You know nothing about Lee Marvin Sargent. We know we know he fought in World War Two from a, uh, World War One, sorry, from a prologue at the start. He killed a man after the armistice, but you also don't know if he has kids, what his day job is, and the film doesn't care either because nothing in the Big Red One is sentimental. It in its subject, we have been stripped to a level whereby what you've seen, scene by scene, is all you need to know in that moment. And our four infantry characters don't even bother to learn the names of the replacements. There's no point, because they're probably going to be dead soon anyway. It seems cold, but you understand it. Would knowing their name make their death more painful? Most likely, yes. So don't do it to yourself. It's a film that you experience in the same way its protagonists do. The more I see it, the more I admire Fuller's take, and also a good example of what you can do on such a limited budget. He keeps the film focused, there's a lot of close-up and mid-shots, and the reason is most likely he couldn't afford to feel what is ever going, what's going on to the other sides of the frame, but in the simplicity, it works. And what we see on the D-Day invasion, the fighting going on as the men try and move up the beach, and then we just cut to a severed hand with a watch on it, as the sea is full of blood, it's another shocking image, cold from something he actually saw. And the style of the film forces an intimacy, close-ups of soldiers shooting at their targets. And what's interesting is the variety of action scenes we get, from large-scale battles in amphitheatres against tanks, a brutal almost hand-to-hand -hand fight in a mental asylum, again another something that Fuller experienced, the storming of the beaches on D-Day, in which the sergeant simply selects one soldier after another to seem to fulfill what all intents and purposes is a suicide mission. And if ever the film makes a case for fighting the war, it's the liberation of a concentration camp. Although no one in the film asks why they are fighting, this scene I think underlines the cause of the war. Griff, played by Mark Hamill, has his doubts if he could kill when he comes up across a hiding SS soldier, he murders him and pumps bullet after bullet into him. The difference between killing and murder is a recurring theme in the film. In this instance, it's most likely the latter, but you don't care, the fucker deserves it, and that's the brutal truth of the fact. Griff, it has in effect become a murderer, the thing that he most likely didn't want to be. But this awful situation has forced that upon him. Now, The Big Red One was well received on its religious release, but Fuller knew that a better film was in there, and in 2004, that's what the world got. Film critic Richard Schickel, along with producer Doug Freeman and editor Brian McKenzie, found many of the film's missing footage, which was now owned by Warner Brothers, and reinstated up to 45 minutes into the film, remastered the soundtrack, and cleaned the film up. The result, quite frankly, is a revelation from what I first saw. And it, deserved, and it led to a well-deserved reappraisal of the Big Red One. And it's become known as one of the great war films. You cannot get hold of the reconstruction on Blu-ray. Um, you can get hold of the original theatrical cut with the restoration as one of the extras disc. 
um, I would avoid that at all. I would just go straight for the DVD because the picture and the sound quality is absolutely terrific. The film now feels massive. Booms and gunshots are all top notch. The rear channels get a really good workout and my subwoofers were really digging deep during some of those war scenes. And I think it made the film so much immersive. And I think Fuller would be really, I think, pleased with this reconstruction. He does say in the book that, you know, although he was he signed off on the theatrical cut he always wanted there to be a longer version out there I don't think the four and a half hour version would have seen the light of day anyway I I, I can't imagine um, it would be that great Fuller does actually say in the book that he, he could imagine it being turned into a mini series which you know if you think about some of the band of brothers one could easily see that but I think what we have here I think Fuller would be incredibly impressed with um, you can pick up this reconstruction for about five quid on DVD, and I think it's well worth doing so. Um, it probably is, I think, to date now, one of my favourite Sam Fuller films, and I was, I was thinking the other day about my favourite war films, and definitely this would have to be in my top ten. So that is going to be it for this episode of the 24 Framed Cast. So my two recommendations, therefore, are pick up the Sam Fuller, A Third Face, the biography, and read it, and then I think... If you read the book and then watch the big red one, I think it would be a lot more of a rewarding experience for you. Um, obviously, you can't follow me on Twitter at the moment, but if you wish to um, find me on Twitter, drop me an email at 24framescast at gmail.com and I will share my new profile with you and hopefully we can follow each other and uh, I, I will return to the platform through stealth. Um, Joachim and I will be firing up the Master of Cinema again very soon. Um, there's an episode on the silent films of John Ford that will be dropping on the feed. Um, there'll also be, um, if you go to the um, my blog as well, I'll be posting up a review on that, uh, an audio review of the James Bond series of Gold. I've just done Gold and I, so that'll be up very soon as well. Many thanks for listening to me. Um, many thanks for listening. I hope you're all keeping safe as this rather awful pandemic comes to an end and um, I will be in contact soon. Many thanks for listening. <laughs>